Hello, I'm Kate Chabot. Welcome to SITREP, your weekly look at the big issues in defence and world affairs. Is Russia planning to cut our electricity and communications cables? Journalists say they've tracked a whole fleet in the North Sea wrecking possible targets. The ship was mapping offshore wind farms in order to prepare for in the event of an escalation in the current situation to be able to sabotage uh, those offshore wind farms. Also this week, what determines whether you win or lose a war? Does your thinking matter more than your tanks, planes and ships? What we're trying to do is affect the psychology of your opponent. If you have the newest, shiniest equipment, but you haven't sorted out your strategy, logistics, morale and training, you're not going to win. The author of How to Fight a War will explain his thinking and a former soldier will give us his verdict on the ideas. And yet again, MPs say that there's a multi-billion pound black hole in the budget to buy essential armed forces equipment. There's a limit to how much money you can keep giving them. They need to spend it properly and actually deliver it on time and on budget. And they simply are not doing this. But the Ministry of Defence calls their findings unsubstantiated. So who should we believe? Professor of Defence Studies Michael Clark will help us unravel all that. Uh, and Mike, I know you've done your homework on that. More than an hour and a half being grilled by the Commons Defence Committee this week on the UK's defence plans. How was it for you? Uh, oh, it's it's fine. The committee, when they when they have a specialist in front of them, they just want to get your ideas. They're not trying to catch you out as they are if there's a minister there or even some officials. So they literally want you to tell them what you think. Sometimes, of course, they're trying to guide you into saying certain things they'd like to put in the report. And sometimes they try to put words in your mouth. So you do have to be a little bit careful. Um, but I've, do, I've done um, specialist evidence for uh, terrorist trials, for instance, and that's much tougher because the other mm. side, whether it's the defence or the prosecution, they're attacked is always to try to cast doubts on your credibility as an expert. So that's much harder because they're trying to find little holes in what you've said. But the Defence Committee, Parliamentary Committees, are much more um, accommodating than that. OK, we'll talk more about that a little later and whether the money's there. But let's start in the North Sea with a Danish documentary crew in a speedboat heading towards a ship. Where is that? Russia says it's just a survey vessel. The journalists think it's more sinister. We are just a few hundred metres away from Vladimirsky. They're following it because they say it's been crisscrossing the North Sea between the UK and Scandinavia, loitering around wind farms. We're filming everything on the ship. We're filming antennas, as we've been told by the source. I can see crew members walking around on the deck. I think they're watching us. At this point, they see someone on board carrying a rifle, looking directly at them. He appears to be in a military uniform, his face almost entirely covered. As more emerge, they decide to pull back. This ship is just part of a Russian programme drawing up sabotage plans against power communications cables in the North Sea, according to this joint investigation by the national broadcasters of Denmark, Norway, Sweden and Finland. It alleges there is a whole fleet of Russian ships, most disguised as fishing trawlers, that are actually carrying out underwater surveillance and mapping key sites. Norwegian shipping agent Torier Onyavik told the programme he witnessed a Russian trawler repeatedly crossing over a cable that connects Norway to Svalbard. And I saw there, so I think that When I saw it, I knew it couldn't be a coincidence. It's a completely illogical movement pattern for a trawler. 
There may have been an insane amount of fish there, but still, passing over such a limited area, more than 130 times. I'm no fisherman, but it doesn't look like regular trawler activity. Well, with me and Mike is Ed Arnold, Research Fellow for European Security at the Royal United Services Institute. Ed, really good to have you today. What do you make of this investigation? Well, I think the first point is this is nothing new, really. There's probably more emphasis in terms of Russian activity in the maritime domain, but in the air domain, I mean, we've seen Russian incursion into airspace all around this area for years and years and years. In terms of what the activity is probably doing is it's mapping undersea infrastructure that connects all of the nations in the north which are pretty critical and as we saw in September last year with the Nord Stream 1 and 2 explosions some of our critical national infrastructure is actually uh, pretty vulnerable and it's something that we need to start resourcing properly. Mike, um, I'm guessing, as as Ed says, this won't be a huge surprise to our government, given the intelligence sources, the documentary makers cite, and also how close these Russian spy ships have come to Britain. Yes. I mean, I think back to December 2017, when the chief of the defence staff then, who was Air Chief Marshal Sir Stu Peach, he, in the in the Rusi Christmas lecture, and of course I remember those very well, that was the first time that a chief of defence staff had made the point that our undersea cables are vulnerable and we've got to do something about it. And this year, in January this year, the Navy took up a ship from trade from a P&O logistics ship and it's being fitted out now as we speak at Camel Eds in Birkenhead as the first multi-role ocean surveillance ship. It's going to be called an MROS and it's going to be a Royal Fleet Auxiliary, so it'll be the RFA Proteus when mm. it is launched quite soon. And that's a very good example of really quick procurement. It'll be in the water by the end of the year. A second ship will follow that's being more specially designed. And so that's a good example, I think, of responding to the perceived threat. So what will they do, Mike, exactly? They're checking on undersea cables, so they'll be, they'll be able to monitor more accurately the the b- behaviour of Russian ships. But it also mm-hmm. means that they'll be able to either repair cables or make sure that they're still in good shape. And they'll certainly, as it were, deter Russian ships from hanging around too much because they'll, the Russians will know that we're watching everything they do. Yes, I think Mike's absolutely right there. We're pretty well covered in terms of our capabilities, and especially in that area with the P-8 Poseidon maritime patrol aircraft and also some anti-submarine warfare capabilities that we have in that area that we are quite orientated towards that. And to be clear, uh, this documentary says it has evidence of Russian intelligence gathering, but not actual sabotage. Uh, Presumably we're doing our own intelligence gathering about Russian infrastructure. Absolutely. And I think, you know, the first phase is to map and sort of really understand where this infrastructure lies and where the key vulnerabilities are. Um, And then that is shaping activity for anything subsequently that you want to do. It's certainly not just a pattern in the sea that was identified. I mean, it's very odd to have a non-military ship with someone who is armed, certainly in the in the way that the uh, soldier in the image was. That's why piracy still happens at the seas. It's very complicated mm-hmm. to actually have armed personnel on ships, so it almost certainly has a military utility. And Mike, wind power generated more than a quarter of our electricity last year. If there were to be a hit on those cables or one of the off-sea wind farms, how badly would we suffer? 
with increasing severity. I mean, all these things are vulnerabilities, just like North Sea oil platforms have to be defended. So increasingly, wind farms, and we're, we're the world leader in offshore wind power, remember, and we'll, we'll have a lot of them in the future. So all of these things have to be protected, and that's one of the jobs that the defence will have to spend more time thinking about. And the Navy, it's another job to, to give predominantly to the Navy, but also to Air Force Maritime Reconnaissance. Thanks for now, but stay with us because we love a good map here on SITREP, and Ed's just produced a rather clever one. Uh, We'll get him to explain a bit more about that a little later. But now, a big question for you. How do you fight a war? Step forward, former Army officer Dr Mike Martin, who's written a whole book to answer that question. He calls it a reference guide for commanders-in-chief. The head of the British Army likes it. General Sir Patrick Sanders calls it essential reading for every soldier, officer and general. But some of Dr. Martin's principles might surprise you, like his argument that war is a conversation and thinking matters more than hardware. So we decided to get the verdict of a former soldier. Iraq veteran and BFBS reporter James Wharton joined me when I spoke to Dr. Mike Martin. War is about psychology. What we're trying to do is affect the psychology of your opponent, you know, the opposing commander in chief, if you're a leader of a country, or, you know, if you're a platoon commander, or even a corporal, a section commander, you're trying to outthink your opponent at the level that you're fighting. And so that's why psychology is absolutely key. And all of these other things, all of this technology, the weapons, information operations, cyber operations, all that stuff is geared towards this central aim, which is affecting your opponent's psychology. And James, essential to the book is a theory that war is an extension of politics. There's a really powerful sentence in the opening that says lethal violence is simply communication that your adversary cannot ignore. Is that the kind of concept that ever occurred to you when you were in Iraq? Certainly not in those terms. The big picture Iraq beginning in 2003 and then it changing from a hearts and minds to an insurgency was certainly something uh, me and my colleagues were aware of. But that was about it in terms of our Mm. understanding. So um, I've certainly not heard it in those terms. I thought it was a wonderful turn of phrase. And I know um, Mike returns to to that point uh, a couple of times through the book. It just reminds the reader that, you know, don't forget, this is a conversation. War is a conversation. Let me give you an example. You know, you're a, a Lance Corporal and you've got a fire team and you've been given you know, orders to, to storm a trench, right? The tools you have at your disposal are largely violent ones, but you could kill your enemy, you could force them to surrender, you could get them to run away. All of the, you know, the violence that you have at your disposal, these are ways of communicating your desire for the enemy to vacate that trench. You're not fussed whether you kill them, they surrender or they run away, but you're able to communicate with them and perhaps force them to do what you want them to do. Well, let's look at the reasons you argue leaders lose wars. Three fallacies, you say, overconfident, being bewitched by technology and misunderstanding the enemy. Can it really be that simple? It's simple in the, in the way that you've just read it to me like that. But each of those things is really, really, really complicated. So let's, let's take them, right? Overconfidence. Mm. As you know, all of your listeners will know, Putin right, has massively overjudged the Russian armed forces' ability in Ukraine. They've performed particularly poorly. And as a dictator, he's really prone to overconfidence, even more so than other leaders. But lots of leaders, you know, Tony Blair in Iraq in 2003 was arguably very, very overconfident about what would happen post-invasion and so on and so forth. So that's a very, very common cognitive bias that you think, oh, well, that's simple. Just don't be overconfident. But we're humans and war is about psychology and it's really hard to escape these cognitive biases. 
Mm. Technology is another one. You know, Boris Johnson, three months before, when he was a prime minister, three months before the Ukraine war, said the days of tank wars on the European plains are over. It's all about computers and all these sorts of gizmos now. In the 1920s, we did it with air power. And the reason we're bewitched by technology is because people come along and say, buy this technology, it's cheaper than deploying land forces and we can achieve the same results. So if you're a politician with budgets under pressure, that's very, very bewitching. And James, um, you were in Iraq four years after the invasion in 2003. At the time, what was your experience of, of overconfidence or not? And do you feel those leading with the, with the benefit of hindsight were overconfident? I think there's a difference between the local commanders on the ground who, who I had immediate access to and those strategically placed much higher up in headquarters or, or, or even in another country. I do think there's a difference between those two groups and, and certainly Nine times out of ten, the commanders I was dealing with on the ground, my section commander, troop leader, squadron leader, they, they were always really on it. And I, and I had the utmost confidence. But, you know, I was in Maison Desert for most of the summer of 2007 and we were achieving very little. And it does start to go around the ranks. You do hear people talking about, you know, what are we actually doing here? What is our purpose? What are we trying to achieve? And, and I think when that happens and it can start to have a, a, an effect on soldiers morale, for example. Yeah, and on that subject of morale, Mike, um, you portray it as more important than equipment or technology. Confidence inspires morale, doesn't it? Yeah, it's it's morale is not not being happy. It, it's the glue that binds these teams together. And when you come under fire and you start taking casualties, or you haven't slept for three days, that's the morale that keeps your unit going. And if you think about the British Army's doctrine of manoeuvre warfare. The aim is to shatter the enemy's cohesion and will to survive. And that's all about destroying their morale so that their units fall apart. If we're talking about small unit tactics, I think morale is probably the most important thing that determines whether a unit will survive or not. Yeah, I mean, I joined Mike. For me, it was the soldiers around me. You know, I think back to that time in the desert. There were definitely occasions when we were really struggling to understand what our purpose was. And, and I would today fault the higher the higher up leadership for, for not sort of maintaining a, a good communication on what it was we were trying to achieve. I think it's a really great point from James that on the ground you guys were thinking what is the purpose why are we here and that exactly speaks to this idea of and how strategy and morale and all that link together we didn't really have an idea at the higher up levels and that's why you know that was felt by you guys on the ground you know you mm. there was no direction from the senior leadership about the purpose because they themselves didn't know what the purpose was obviously knowing why you're there knowing what the reason is for your deployment crucial and and being able to see the big picture as you <coughs> just said, said um, James is so helpful what about equipment though because that must be very fundamental as well from my perspective, equipment in Iraq was an ongoing uh, headache. And we were also getting by in the desert with old kit. You know, I was a CVRT driver. You know, these vehicles were introduced in the, in the 1970s and, uh, and they certainly weren't designed for the, the desert of, of, of Iraq. So, yeah, I, I really enjoyed Mike's point at the beginning. He says he's written the book in order of precedence of the things that commanders should, should get right to fight a war. And logistics is the second, the second most important thing. Uh, and, I, and I would completely agree. And, but I, I suppose 
Mike, you don't understand a soldier. I'm always going to complain that I haven't got the right yeah, fit or, yeah, or enough of these. Yeah. fit, yeah. <laughs> Indeed, quite. Um, I, I think I think what it is, Kate, is that you can, if you get your strategy, your logistics, and your morale and your training right, then you can you can get by with perhaps not the newest equipment. Right. But if you have the newest, shiniest equipment, but you haven't sorted out your strategy, logistics, morale and training, you're not going to win. That was Dr. Mike Martin, author of How to Fight a War and James Wharton. We spoke for much longer, including how Mike's principles might apply in Ukraine and how understanding Iraq better helped James when he was serving. You can hear the whole conversation in an extra edition of the SITREP podcast online now. News, discussions and analysis. This is SITREP. Now, this week, the Prime Minister, Rishi Sunak, said he wants all pupils to study maths until the age of 18. But his own government stands accused of not being able to properly add up the costs of defence. At the time we wrote the report, the affordability gap is at least £7 billion. That's £5 billion increasing costs and £2 billion deficit in, in many of the budgets. Conservative MP Sir Geoffrey Clifton-Brown, Deputy Chair of the Public Accounts Committee. Yet again, it reports that the MOD cannot afford all the military equipment it's planning to buy and operate over the next decade. The MPs accuse the department of optimism bias, ignoring huge financial risks and lacking urgency to re-equip the armed forces. Now, they do acknowledge their report scrutinised figures produced before the budget, which promised an extra at £11 billion, but nearly half of that money is for new commitments. And Sir Geoffrey told me they're not convinced the rest will solve the repeated problems of defence budget black holes. This has been an ongoing trait in MOD budget for many, many years. I think it's partly that we don't uh, have good enough contracts with our defence suppliers. It's partly that the top brass in the military, when they procure something, constantly change the specifications. A classic example of that is Ajax at the moment, which we've paid out $3.1 billion and we still haven't got a workable vehicle because they kept changing the specifications. Right across our armed forces, we've got problems. I mean, just look at the aircraft carrier a problem with the Prince of Wales. So I think there are a number of worrying aspects about British defence at the moment. Uh, our armed forces are at their lowest level for a long time, leading to the possibility we might not even be able to put an armoured division into our NATO capability. But secondly, that our kit, particularly for the army, Ajax, Boxer, uh, and their communication system, Morpheus, just not a, are not coming through and they're not ready. And this leaves us, I think, in quite a vulnerable state. And what does it all mean for the men and women of the armed forces? Well, what it means is really that they're probably not, and I, I don't want to go on too strongly on this, but they're probably not um, having the equipment, the, the very best equipment uh, that they need. And I think that's particularly true in the army. And it's what really is uh, concerning in the army is not only is they not got the best equipment, but they, the communication systems, the very sophisticated communication systems like Morpheus, are nowhere near ready. And this is this is this is this is concerning. You say the department has not demonstrated the necessary urgency to deliver enhanced capabilities to deter hostile parties. What's the problem here? Because everything we hear from defence ministers suggests they fully understand the need for deterrence. Or, or what is the problem? 
I should say, they understand the need for deterrence. They understand the need for new and updated equipment. What they're not doing properly is procuring it properly with adequate contracts, making sure that our defence suppliers do actually supply it on time uh, and on budget. And, and I just think that is what is going wrong at the moment. They haven't got sufficient numbers of skilled people to be able to do those tasks. So how do you resolve this? Get better people in? You've certainly got to get better people in. No question about that. But it's reaching a, a fair degree of crunch at the moment because the world is such an uncertain place. And particularly with Ukraine, of course, because we need to be, as, as indeed all our Western um, allies are, uh, really ramping up our production in order to be able to replace the munitions and, and other equipment that we, we're sending to Ukraine. So this is a really crunch moment for British defence at the moment. It's inexcusable, isn't it? Well, they need to just get their act into gear and get these things designed properly, uh, really put a rocket booster under our, our defence suppliers and, and just get on and procure this stuff. It's, it's, it, you know, it's, it, it should, be, should be possible to do it. And uh, they come before us time after time and there's every sort of excuse. You say it should be possible to do it, but it has been this way for decades. Is, is it the case that actually everyone is having too high an expectation of defence procurement, that we're wanting too much for too little? Well, this is, the, this is my point. Whatever we want, we should budget properly so that we can actually afford what we're what we're trying to purchase what they're doing at the moment is tending to roll over one bit of kit into another year in order to save money that is not the way to run a budget is it a case of finding more money as well though to have more capable armed forces well uh, i mean rishi sunak gave them um uh five billion this year and for 2024 they got an extra six billion in in the budget there's a limit to how much money you can keep giving them they need to spend it properly and actually deliver it on time and on budget. And they simply are not doing this. Sir Geoffrey Clifton-Brown, MP of the Public Accounts Committee. Well, the MOD, we must say, has issued a pretty robust rejection of the committee's findings. It says it does not recognise the broken procurement system painted by this report and that it routinely assesses time, cost and risk factors on all projects and delivers the vast majority on time and in budget. It also says the Ukraine war has largely confirmed its 2019 war fighting analysis and that the committee's view that the plan does not align with the lessons learnt is unsubstantiated. Uh, Mike, um, I've lost count of how many times we've had this conversation. How can they have such different assessments? Yeah, it's an interesting question, isn't it? You know, the MOD are right when they say that they are spending an extra 57% on equipment. The equipment budget, capital spending in MOD is going up 57%. Current expenditure is going to go down by 5%. So the MOD is being cut everywhere you can, you can see in order to make space in the running costs for this big equipment budget. And remember, we've got inflation to worry about. If inflation drops to the Bank of England's target of 2%, then the money going into defence between now and 2025 will show some some ability to buy some new things and to spend money in different ways. But mm -hmm. if inflation doesn't go down that low, if it stays at about 4%, which a lot of commentators think it will, or even higher, then essentially the MOD will just be running hard to stand still. And none of that, none of that takes account of the extra demands on sustainment or war stocks that the Ukraine war is now exerting on all European countries. 
So much to think about. And, and Mike, we said at the start of this programme that you gave evidence on Tuesday to a different group of MPs, the Defence Committee, about the recent refresh of the integrated review. What's your assessment of how they see it? Do they also have big concerns? Mm. Well, uh, we won't know until they publish their report, and I wouldn't try and second guess, you know, what they're going to say in that report. But what um, Professor Malcolm Chalmers and I were saying in that in that uh, meeting was that the integ- the integrated review refresh, I mean, scores quite highly as an essay on the state of of the world that Britain is facing. But there's not enough specificity in all of this. Both the the original review and the refresh raise more questions than it answered. And those questions will only be answered by the decisions which are made in the next three or four years. And that's what the committee are grappling with. And I think they probably will end up saying that, you know, the government may be heading in the right direction. But my goodness, it's got a lot of catching up to do on the implementation of what it says it wants. That's that's my sense of where the committee will probably go in their report. But we'll have to see. Now, I promised you a clever new map. The interactive chart from Rusi lets you explore the UK's military presence and defence relationships in Europe. Let's bring back Ed Arnold and his team are behind this map. Um, Ed, um, what's your idea, Ed? Yes, so this is a joint project between Rusi and the Konrad Adenauer Stiftung in Germany. Um, And essentially it was to take it, firstly it was to take into account some structural changes after Brexit. But it's actually starting to get more complicated than that. And the Ukraine war has brought about some other changes. Obviously, Finland joining NATO, the European Sky Shield Initiative also in NATO, and a new trilateral agreement with Poland and Ukraine. So this map is just to try and show the multilateral, minilateral and bilateral relationships that the UK has with Europe and that are growing. Quite a task. How does it work? Well, you can go on it and you can click and search either by an organisation or a group or a country and then it will take, you know, give you the information in terms of the UK's relationship and then it also links out to the primary source material so so you can see the text of the treaties and the organisations. So it's really a research tool and a quick reference guide, which actually I use myself in my own research uh, since it went live. <laughs> and it's, it's just tried to show the complete complexity and it's also worth noting that this is phase one we have the ambition and intent to really try and map out what people call the the, the european security architecture sort of yeah. all of those frameworks initiatives agreements structures that will have to change pretty significantly due to the war in ukraine I mean, I've got it in front of me and I have to say, I mean, I love it because, I mean, you can click on any country. For example, I'm on Poland now and it talks about mutual relationships. It talks about it's an observing member of the Arctic Council, non-member. I mean, the detail and the bilateral agreements, as you say, I mean, in a way, if you look at it sort of just very superficially, you you, you wouldn't realise all the problems there are. Um, I suppose it's just a starting point, is it? Exactly that. It's a starting point and it doesn't go down into a significant amount of detail yet but it might do and we also might do sort of regional deep dives and on the UK deployment standing missions and exercises is a good example that it it just shows where the UK either leads or will routinely commit to exercises that are either yearly or or biannual In, in actual fact the activity that the UK does within Europe on exercises is significantly more that's shown in the map but the issue is if we actually try to look at every <laughs> exercise <laughs> that the UK does um, that would that's be part two is it <laughs> well it would be, be a full-time job in itself and Mike have you tried it out uh, yes I have indeed and you know I think it's a great shame that the people who really know the answers to all our security problems 
are all driving cabs and cutting hair. And I wish, <laughs> you know, I, if I have this map on my phone, I'll just pull the phone out and I'll say, look at this, look at this. And that will shut them up. Um, and I did. I mean, I've, I've played around with it quite a lot. And if you, if you press locations and deployments and exercises all together and you see the number of flags that come up, you just see how busy United Kingdom Armed Forces really are. I can see you in that cab pulling your phone out and saying, look at this, look at this. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Keep them quiet for a while, that will. (laughs) And um, it puts a lot of information at our fingertips, but how hard has it been to pull it all together? It has been a gradual process and probably what you see on the map, I'd say 10% of what's currently in an Excel spreadsheet on my system. And that's what I say about the, you know, because this is just from a UK perspective as well was starting to design phase two and three, you know, just start to add the data in. So not to overwhelm the user, but just to start to add in uh, information points where the researchers and other people who want to use it can start to get a greater understanding of Europe's defence and security relationships. And Mike, we've talked before about why maps really matter in war, but does this one matter or does it just make your life a bit easier when you're doing your research? Oh, no, I think it matters because it brings out uh, the complexity, the depth of a series of relationships. And, you know, this sort of software could be used by RUSI to produce maps of the sort of vulnerabilities we've talked about, the undersea cables, those that are obviously in the public domain. But you could produce these sorts of maps on uh, all types of things. And the fact that it's interactive and that it is available in its computer-generated form is really important because, as a lot of, of battlefield commanders have observed, the only thing that unites all battles is that they're always uphill and on the join between three maps. And mm. the, idea, the idea of being able to look at something um, and manipulate it is um, one of the benefits of uh, our modern digital technologies. And if you want to see for yourself everywhere in Europe that British forces are currently working or dig into who's signed up to what and who isn't, just search for RUSI Interactive Map Online. Professor Michael Clark, Ed Arnold, thank you so much for your time and my thanks to all of our guests. That is all for now. We'll be back with another SITREP next Thursday. And if you want to listen online, you can now find us on the Forces News YouTube channel as well as our home at bfbs.com slash SITREP or wherever you download your podcasts. For now, though, from me, Kate Chabot, thank you for listening. Bye-bye.